Once again, this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Our text is going to be taken from verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1. On the sixth day, God first of all created the living land creatures, and then As we continue to read what he did on the sixth day, we read beginning with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Before we look at these words, let's once again pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for this magnificent account of that which took place long ago when you created the heavens and the earth. And now on the sixth day, when you created man in your own image. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to marvel and wonder at what you have done, but also that you would help us to live in the light of the truth that we read here. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher, and that he would use this which we study out of your word as a means of of directing our steps in the way that we should go. We pray all these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. A moment ago, we sang from David's wonderful eighth psalm concerning the glories of creation and of God's special interest in man whom he created on the sixth day. And in verses three and four of that psalm that we just sang, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you visit him. These two verses were written out, and they were left on the moon, by Buzz Aldrin in July of 1969, when he and Neil Armstrong became the first humans to walk on the lunar surface. And they raised the question, and they must have raised the question in the minds of these two men who walked on the moon. Who are we? Where, uh, where has our race come from? And as we look at the vast heavens through the Hubble Space Telescope as it orbits the Earth, and the heavens appear much larger now, no doubt, than what David could see, and even larger than what Aldrin and Armstrong could see from the moon. We wonder as we consider the heavens that God made and wonder where our place is in the midst of this vast universe. And as we see the amazing pictures that are set back from the Hubble to the Earth, we naturally wonder these kinds of things. And the only true revelation concerning our place in the universe is not found in what our astronauts could see on that day. They're not found in the stunning pictures that are sent back to us from the Hubble. And when we start getting images that will be sent back to us, Lord willing, from the newly constructed James Webb Space Telescope, which is a hundred times more powerful than Hubble, 
we will still not have answers to our deepest questions about our place in the universe. The only true and the only satisfying answer to these questions is given in the revelation from God that we have just read from Genesis chapter 1. Our focus this morning is going to be upon what Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 tell us about man's highest distinction, his creation in the image of God. And for now, we're going to bypass what we find in verse 26 about man's dominion over the rest of the creatures that God made. We'll take that up, Lord willing, in another sermon. But instead, we're going to pay attention this morning to three features concerning the creation of man that are contained in these two verses. We see, first of all, here a divine emphasis, and secondly, a divine collaboration, and thirdly, a divine image. In the first place, I draw your attention to a divine emphasis that is placed here. It is very clear that the creation of man is the apex of God's creative work. And there are three things in this passage that show us the unique significance of man's creation. And the first thing that shows this emphasis that God places upon a man being created is that it is the final creative event. The majestic march of the days climaxes with the creation of the first two human beings. This is the final creative event of the creation week. And when the crown jewel has been formed, when it's been put in its prominent place in the crown that God has fashioned, God was then finished with his creative work. And this is the crown jewel. This is the last thing. And God saves the best for the last, just like when we walk a, watch a fireworks show, they don't want to watch the fizzling out at the end. They're always the most glorious and the most, ex, most exciting to see right at the very end of a show. And that's what God does here in this place. It's the final event. And that gives emphasis to it. And then the space that's given to this event also emphasizes its importance. The full account of the creation of the first man and the first woman is given from verse 26 all the way down through verse 20 or verse 30. And then we also have the account of a whole chapter, the next chapter, telling us about the creation of man and the woman. More space is given, you see, to this final creative act than any other act or any other uh, part of creation that we read of here in Genesis chapter 1. And then there's a third thing that emphasizes this. And it's the use of the Hebrew word bara, the Hebrew word for create. And in this chapter, the Hebrew word bara is used very sparingly. It's the word that's translated create. It's not the word translated make most of the time. But in verse 27, this word used so rarely in this chapter, it's used three times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God repeats himself, I think we need to pay attention. And why is it then that the inspired account does this? Why does it repeat this? Does God think that we don't know how to read? Why is this threefold use of the word found in this way only with reference to the creation of man? And this repetition is a Hebrew way of expressing a superlative expressing the greatest of an account that's being given. And 
It sets the creation of man forth as the apex of God's creative work. Moses could have just said it once, but he repeats himself. And he does so, speaking of it three times in a row. And the way that Moses uses another Hebrew word, the word that's translated make, in verse 26, this also highlights the unique prominence of this creative event. When God creates man, he uses an expression that differs from all the expressions that he's used all the way up to this point in the account. In verse 24, for instance, he says, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures. That's the way he speaks of it. He says, he gives a command, let this be done. But here in verse 26, he doesn't state that. He says, let us make man. He doesn't say, let the earth bring forth man, as it did the creatures, and let the sea bring forth the, the sea creatures, etc. In a very different way, he says, let us make man. And in these ways, God emphasizes that this creative work is exceedingly special. And so, dear people, if you could travel a hundred times faster than the speed of light, and you could pass countless stars to the edge of our galaxy, and you could swoop near a fiery glow a few hundred light years away, even if you could draw near, and even if you could examine some of the hot young stars illuminating the gas and the dust that we see in the distance with their telescopes, even though you could see the spectacular display of color such as you've never seen perhaps in your life, you never would see even in that anything that is equal to the birth and the wonder of the first human being. And why is this so? Well, the greatest wonder of all in that sight would be this. What you witness when you witness the creation of a human being is the creation of a human being in the image of God. That can't be said of anything else that God made. In this vast universe, there is nothing that can compare with the image of God. There's nothing that's higher than being like God or reflecting God. When the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, when all the stars vanish from the universe, the soul that's created in the image of God will continue to live and to do so forever. Such is the divine emphasis that is placed upon this event. But now I want you to notice with me, in the second place, that we have here a divine collaboration. Now a collaboration is a work that's accomplished by cooperative efforts, and it's usually by more than one person, and several persons sometimes, but at least two people. There's a collaboration. And this is what we have in the words at the beginning of verse 26. The words begin this way, let us make man. Now in verses 3, 6, 9, 10, 11, 14, 20, 24, in all those places we read these words, and then God said. And in each instance, after we read, then God said, it's followed by words like, let there be, or something very similar to that. But in this place, we don't read, let there be man. But instead, in verse 26, we read, then God said, let us make man. It's a plural, let us make man. And this sets the creation of man apart from every other creative event. 
And notice, too, that we don't read, let me make man. The text reads, let us make man. God uses a plural pronoun to refer to himself. And what are we to make of this? Well, there are some critics that say that what we have here is a vestige of polytheism, of many gods. And this is certainly incorrect, because the entire creation account is strongly monotheistic. And furthermore, it is found at the very beginning of the five books of Moses. And there's no place in all the Bible that stresses that God is one God more than the books of Moses. And even if there were some vestiges of polytheism among the Israelites, and even if there's somehow in some manuscript somebody snuck in, you see, a polytheistic reference to the creation account, it surely would have been quickly removed. And especially it would have been removed because it would have been so easily done. And the fact that the plural us was allowed to stand, this clearly indicates that there was some other meaning intended than to convey the idea that there are different, there's a bunch of gods that did this together. So this is not a vestige of polytheism. Others have supposed that what we have here is a divine assembly. In particular, God meet assembling the court of his angels in heaven. And he says, let us make man in our own image. But this idea is a direct contradiction with the very central thought of Genesis chapter 1 that God alone created the universe and everything in it. He didn't create with the help of the angels. And furthermore, if the plural pronoun us, if this referred to the angels, this would apply that when God says, let us make man in our image, that God is speaking to angels, meaning that man is made in the image of angels as well as in the image of God. And that's not what is being said here. It's an unthinkable idea. And furthermore, the rest of the Bible is a complete agreement that it was God, not God and the angels who created everything, man included. And then there are people that have suggested that what we have here is a plural of majesty. They suppose that God is speaking like kings do. Instead of saying, I decree, a king will say, we decree. It's a plural of majesty. And it's really only himself is decreeing, it's not other people with him. But he uses the word, we. And one of the most memorable examples of the majestic plural was when Queen Victoria would say, we are not amused when turning up her nose at a tasteless joke. We are not amused. She's speaking of herself. But it has been shown by scholars of the ancient world that the plural of majesty hadn't even existed in, in, in the writings and the conversations of people back when Moses wrote this book. It was introduced by the Persians long after Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So this idea of plural of majesty is not there either. And there's still others. They've interpreted these words, let us make, as an instance of the plural of deliberation. And essentially, this interpretation portrays God as talking to himself. Now, sometimes we do this when we're about to make a decision. We say, well, let's see. Shall I walk to work tomorrow or shall I drive? Let's see. And we're not really expecting anybody that's there to give us an answer. We're just kind of thinking out loud. Let's see. We use this plural, you see. We're just referring to ourselves. And though the plural is used, the person that's muttering this under his breath is just talking to himself. But I don't think that God was just muttering under his breath. 
He was about to do something momentous, so momentous as the creation of man in his own image. And so I don't think that we have here is just God, just this plural, you say, of deliberation in the way that we often do when we try to make a decision. And this brings me to what I do believe that this passage teaches. This is what we might call a plural of collaboration. Now remember, collaboration, this is a work that's performed by one or more equal persons. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 14. It denies that God consults with anybody, whether human or heavenly, in his creation or in his government of the world. We read in those verses, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him the path of justice? This passage makes it plain that God didn't, when he makes everything, talk to the angels or talk to any others that are there and say, well, let's, let's see what we should do here. Who has who given God counsel, Isaiah says. So how are we to explain the fact that we have one God speaking here, and yet he says, let us make man in our image, twice using the plural, us and our. What do we make of this? Well, surely what we have here is an early and shadowy manifestation of the fact that God is one, and yet he is more than one. There is plurality in unity. It doesn't clearly state the Trinity, that there are three persons in the Godhead, but there's this plural idea associated with a one God. And the full revelation, for instance, especially of the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus, this was yet to come. And the sending forth of the Holy Spirit of the day of Pentecost, this too was a long ways off. And it wasn't until Jesus came and the Holy Spirit was sent that the whole doctrine of the Trinity became plainer than it ever was, than it ever was in the Old Testament. And so we mustn't imagine, you see, that here in Genesis chapter 1, at this early stage in redemptive history, that there was a well-developed understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. The New Testament clearly teaches that creation was the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We read in Hebrews 1, for instance, that he created all things. Colossians 1 says the same thing. But at this point, God's revelation of himself as triune wasn't fully revealed. And yet there's this plurality within unity that's here. In verse 2, we read of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. So we read there the Spirit of God. And here we have a deliberation between a plurality of persons. Let us make man in our image. And within the divine being, you see, there is a distinction of personalities. And there was an intra-divine deliberation, therefore, or conversation among the persons within the Godhead. And while the second person of the Trinity is not mentioned here specifically, at least in verse 2, we have, we're told that the Spirit was involved. He was hovering over the, the dark waters. And here in verse 26, there is a divine plurality that is clearly assumed. God here speaks of the Holy Spirit as a co-participant in creation. And this highlights the wonder and the greatness of what God's doing here. It's as if we are allowed to peep into the council chamber of God and listen to him making this decision. As John Calvin comments, hitherto God has been introduced simply as commanding, 
Now, when he approaches the most excellent of his works, he enters into consultation. Well, we've seen that in these verses that there is a divine emphasis. And then, secondly, there is a divine collaboration. But now I want to come to the heart of our sermon this morning. The third place, we come to its central feature. We have here a divine image. Notice the emphasis of these verses. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And then skip down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now what is there about man that is so unique? What is it that makes him so privileged? What is it that makes him different from every other created entity? It is this. Man was created in the image of God. All of creation bears witness to the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 tells us. But it is men and women who have been created in God's image who have the highest honor among all of God's creatures. And why is this so? Well, in a peculiar way, they represent, they express God. Can you think of any higher privilege than this? Can you think of any higher honor than to be, as it were, God-witnesses, to, to be those that radiate to the rest of creation in a representative way, God. Every other creature is distinguished by their kind. He created the different animals after their different kinds. There was this kind, there was that kind. You go on the, the reconstructed ark there that Anxious and Genesis put up and you see the animals, the dinosaurs, and you have a certain kind that's mentioned here. And they're reflecting the language of Genesis chapter 1. And each of the living creatures is, re, is, is said to re, reproduce according to its kind. This is emphasized repeatedly throughout this chapter. There are different types and species of vegetation, different types, different kinds of birds and sea creatures and land animals. But man is not broken down into different kinds. It isn't that, well, there were all these different kinds of dinosaurs, different species, and there are different species of man. He, he reproduces according to whatever kind he happens to be. It's just, this isn't said that, that way in the, in the book of Genesis. The only distinctive that matters is that we are created in God's image. And whether we are black, whether we are brown, whether we are white, it doesn't matter. We are one kind. This should break down racism, if anything should. Every human being that you see has this same fundamental distinctive. He or she is an image bearer of God. Every human being is of one kind. A human being created in God's image. And the root of the Hebrew word for image, it appears to have meant to carve or to cut off. And perhaps this idea is best conveyed by the Latin Vulgate rendering which translated into English, it is translated to our image. God created to our image. In other words, man was shaped, he was formed to fit the image of God. 
He was created in such an exalted fashion that he would resemble God and he would fit into fellowship with God. Now, in a literal sense, an image is a visible representation. In the Bible, the Hebrew word for image, it also denotes a statue that a king would erect of himself. He would make a statue that looks like himself, and it would be erected as a symbol of his sovereignty. You remember how in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar erects a huge statue of himself, and he wants to unify all the empire around the worship of the emperor. And this image represents the king and his authority. And one of the most striking instances of this idea can be found also in the 9th century B.C. Aramaic Akkadian inscription on a statue from Tel Farakia in the upper harbor of Syria. And this refers in this particular place to a statue that is a likeness and an image of King Hadassi, you see. And just as a statue reflects, you see, the power and authority and the glory of a human king, a human being reflects the glory of God. In the ancient world, there's also this very interesting fact. Not only would a statue be said to be an image of that king, but it would also be said that that king that it is conveying an image of, he is an image of his God. And here is the Genesis account is radically different from all these pagan religions. In the Egyptian and the Mesopotamian society, the king or some high-ranking official, he might be called the image of God, but only him. But such a designation, this this, this wasn't applied to a canal digger. No canal digger is an image of God. Nobody building pyramids, hauling those big stones up there, laboring 16 hours a day, uh, sweating themselves to death. These are just the, the, the riffraff. They're not the image of God. But Genesis 1 applies the royal idea of being an image of God to all mankind. In God's eyes, all mankind is royal. All of humanity is related to God, not just the king. Verse 26 speaks of man being created in God's image and according to his likeness. And in some contexts, the word likeness, it can have a weaker connotation than the word image. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 10, the prophet never says that he saw God directly. But again and again, he sees the likeness of God or the likeness of something associated with God. But Calvin, I think, is correct in his view that in the original Hebrew, these two terms here that are put together, image and likeness, there's not really a great distinction between those terms. They're basically synonyms. And it was customary with the Hebrews to repeat the same thing but to use a different word. And they would do this by way of emphasis. And I believe that's simply what we have in this passage It seems that here in Genesis 1, the two words are used roughly in the same manner. And the astonishing teaching of these verses is that as creatures created in the image of God, men and women are like God in some respects. Man is made after a heavenly divine pattern. And this is not true of any other creature. Here in Genesis 1, The points of comparison between man and God are not specifically listed as to what this all means in in detail. 
And the, the comparison, I think, is deliberately vague. And it allows us to trace it out in the rest of the Bible to see the various points of contact or various comparisons that exist between man who is created in the image of God and God. In your outlines, I've listed six such uh, comparisons or six such likenesses. And we're going to take the first three this morning. I wasn't able to get everything else on paper and it was running out of time and running out of space anyway. And so we're just going to concentrate on the first three that are listed in your bulletins. First of all, we have here in the image of God an indelible likeness. Indelible ink, you remember, it's ink that can't be erased. And here we need to look at three key passages. First of all, flip over a couple pages to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5, beginning with verse 1, we read, This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So notice, verse 1, God created man in the likeness of God. And then in verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Now, we might easily jump to the conclusion that there is an intended contrast between Adam being created in the likeness of God, verse 1, and his begetting his son in the likeness of his own image. One is an image of God, one is an image of a, of a, of a father. But I believe that this would be a mistake. These are put here together for a reason. Chapter 5 and verse 1, Adam being created in the likeness of God, this obviously harks back to Chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image. And there's no hint that a different idea is being introduced in verse 3. And since chapter 5 it is the beginning of the book of generations of Adam, it's giving that, there's every reason to believe that there is a connection between Adam's creation and God's likeness and Adam begetting a son in his own likeness. And that Seth would then pass on this image-bearing capacity to his son, and then to that son's son, and so forth. And it's quite apparent that God intends that we conclude that every generation after Adam perpetuates the same divine image, this image-bearing capacity. And elsewhere in Scripture, we don't find any passages that indicate that there's any sharp distinction between Adam being in the image of God and his posterity his descendants, bearing the same image. And as we're going to see in a moment, this image, bearing capacity, was not removed by the fall. Now turn with me, please, to chapter 9, verse 6. This is after the flood, after they come out of the ark, and God promises he's not going to destroy everything like he did before. And yet he says in verse 6, Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. 
Now this law, it was instituted for man in his fallen state. It doesn't assume that Adam, after he fell into sin, somehow he lost the image. This is speaking about a fallen state of mankind, so wicked that God had to destroy almost every creature, almost every living human being. It's wickedness that has prevailed. And yet even though this wickedness has prevailed, there's an assumption that man is still created in the image of God. And here we have three considerations. We have the gravity of man's sin of murder. And we have the gravity of the penalty. It's capital punishment. And we have the reason for this grave penalty of capital punishment. And if man in his fallen state, if he is not in the image of God anymore, and if this identity does not apply to him anymore, then the fact that he is of the image of God, this can't be given as a reason for the severe penalty. But it's precisely the fact that he is made in the image of God. This is why the penalty is so severe. It's an image bearer of God that's been killed. That's why capital punishment is instituted by God. And the thought is that the taking of life of another man is a particularly heinous offense. Because it's an assault on the image of God. And for that reason, the crime deserves the ultimate punishment. And the same holds true today. This isn't something that was just for Jewish. This was even before Israel was raised as a nation. This is mankind that God is dealing with. And it's even fallen mankind. This is his prescription. And now turn with me to one other passage that speaks about how this image continues even in man's fallen state. James chapter 3. What to read here from verses 8 and 9. Speaking about the sins of the tongue. He says in verse 8. Chapter 3 verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil. Full of deadly poison. And here's the significant verse. With it we bless our God and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or in the image of God. Now these verses tell us that the tongue is full of a deadly poison. It inflicts great damage. It, it, It is a sin that needs to be reined in like a bridle. It's an unruly evil, full of poison, verse 8. And surely this applies to all vilification of other people by means of our tongues, and especially to cursing other people. And again, the seriousness of this sin of the tongue, the seriousness of these sins, I should say, of the tongue, is heightened by the consideration of the ones that you are cursing, the ones you are bad-mouthing, It's that that person is a person made in the image of God. And these words apply, you see, not only to our treatment of believers. He isn't saying, well, don't curse Christians. It applies to unbelievers. James is not saying if the person you you curse has been renewed by the image of God, the image you can see, it's been started all over again in him. 
If he's a godly person, it's evil to, to curse that person. That's not what James is saying. No such restriction is found here. All men are bearers of the image of God. And therefore speaking evil of them and cursing them instead of blessing them is especially heinous. When what another person says or when what another person makes you, does to you makes you angry, at that point you're, you're tempted to let, the, let it rip and let curses fly, let hateful speech fly, angry speech fly. You're sinning against an image bearer of God. Remember that. That should restrain the way we use our tongues. And there's in all men and women an indelible image of God that cannot be erased even by sin. This, by the way, should be something that would govern the way we speak of others that we differ with. And we're so polarized as a country, we need to gutter our tongues by the fact that we remember again and again that whoever we're speaking about is an image bearer of God. And so there is an indelible likeness. And by this, we're emphasizing the fact that this image can never be erased. Even wicked people are the image of God. Now, the image has been distorted. There's been damage done to it, but they're still in the image of God, according to these passages. But then, secondly, there is also an intellectual likeness. And here I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. He says... Do not lie to one another, verse 9. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now here Paul is speaking about believers in Christ. And specifically he's talking about a work of renovation, a new creation that takes place in the hearts of every true believer when they're converted. And you'll notice the past tense is used in both of these verses that I just read. The renovation is not an ongoing thing that he's speaking of here in particular, but it's something that happened at one's conversion. And this renovation includes a renewal in the knowledge of God. And the pattern of that renewal is renewal in the image of God. And while all men still bear the image of God, darkness has overtaken the minds of sinners. And the image, while it's still there, it's defaced. It isn't a perfect image anymore. It's the the, the representation of God has been obscured. And the renewal, therefore, of of this image in the heart of the believer, it's patterned after, and it's in accordance with the image of the one who created him. It's bringing us back to that same condition, at least closer to it, that we once had before we fell into sin. Now, Reformed theologians, therefore, they generally conclude that the knowledge of God, this was part of the original image. And by determining what this image includes when it's restored, when it's renewed, when we we see that here, we can read it back, you see, into what we have in Genesis chapter 1. Charles Hodge, for instance, he contends that the word knowledge in this place, it refers to the knowledge of God, since the word has this very sense several times before this in in Colossians 
chapter 1 and chapter 2. In his sermon on the creation of man, the Scottish theologian and preacher of the early 1700s, Thomas Boston, he explains what this verse implies about man in his fallen state. He was created wise, referring to what he was originally created. Not that he knew all things, for that is proper to the omniscient being alone. But he was ignorant of nothing that he was obliged to know. And he had all, talking about Adam, he had all the knowledge necessary for life and for godliness. He had a clear, he had distinct apprehensions of God and of God's nature and of God's perfections. And the primitive pair, it had God's law written on their hearts. And even this same law that has afterwards been inscribed upon the tablets of stone, this was the knowledge that was in the heart of man before he fell into sin. This was part of his image-bearing capacity. So there is an intellectual likeness. Not that we're omniscient. It's rather that we know things that God has communicated to us. And this is not true of any of the animals or any of the birds or any of the monkeys, no matter what they do to try to say, well, they learn, oh, you see this monkey, he's digging the, the, with a little stick, and, the, and he, must, he's, he's, he, he must be evolving, you see. He's, he's, he's learned how to use a tool. No, my friend. He's not in the image of God. He doesn't have that kind of knowledge that is distinctive to humanity, that has the image of God and the knowledge that goes with it. And then thirdly and finally, and I want to come to a few words of practical application, there is a moral likeness that is included in this image. And here I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 20. Paul says in verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. He's just been speaking about the life of the ungodly. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct. And this is not saying in this place you have put it off, but you're still to keep on doing it here. You put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, notice this, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And just as we read in Colossians, Paul is writing to believers in Christ, and again, he's speaking about the work of renovation in man when the image is renewed. And it's more and more renewed as we grow in grace. And this work of renovation, it is renewal, he says, of the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So part of that image-bearing capacity is righteousness and holiness. And in this recreation that begins at our conversion, and it continues as we are more and more sanctified by the word of God and by the spirit of God. This, in this recreation, that which we had when we were first created, this is being renewed. And the concept, again, of our new creation, this is according to God. 
And this harks back to being like God, being made according to God. It's a similar, it's a, a similar phrase to what we have in Genesis chapter 1. And this included true righteousness and holiness. It includes rectitude, righteousness, rectitude with our neighbor. And it includes our relationship and piety with God. It includes holiness. And this informs us about man's original condition as an image bearer of God. There was a perfect conformity in man's will to the will of God. His heart was inclined to do God's will. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says God made man upright. He was upright. He was, had this righteousness, you see, when he was first created. He was, his will was upright. It was aligned with God's will. And it didn't bend to the right or to the left. Adam, before he fell, he had the ability to fulfill the whole law of God. And not only did he have this rectitude in his dealings with others, namely his wife, but he was also holy. His affections were pure and holy. They were without the tincture of any vicious or impure desire. His desires were only set on lawful objects and in a lawful way. He loved what God loved. He hated what God hated. He delighted in God with all of his heart and soul and strength and mind. He was holy. He was pious in the highest sense of the word. So this was included in Adam's creation in the image of God. And again, the renewal of that image, we read it back from this text into what took place back in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. Now as we seek to draw some practical lessons from what we have just seen in God's word, the first thing that I want to stress is that every human being is of inestimable value. And here is an answer to our struggles with a sense of personal unworthy, uh, personal worthlessness. That's a word I should use. Now, usually people that struggle with a sense of worthlessness, this struggles, it, it, it stems from a failure to recognize what he or she really is. A sense of worthlessness, let me emphasize, emphasize is different from a sense of unworthiness. All of us sense and know we are unworthy of God's mercy. We, we are convicted over our sins. I'm talking about somebody that feels like they're worthless. And what this passage tells us is that as God's image bearers, we are not a bag of garbage. Every human being is special. Every human being has been made by God in God's image. We are never without significance. And likewise, we mustn't despise others. We mustn't also despise ourselves in the way that we fail to see that God has given us his image. But we mustn't despise others either. Every human being deserves to be treated with disrespect. And at a time like we're going through as a nation, I don't know of a time ever where we've been so, so polarized. Maybe back in the Vietnam War, maybe, but I, even then it doesn't seem like it's what it, what's like now. And when, when this is happening, talk show hosts, they tend to skewer those of the opposing party with exaggerated depictions, with derision, and with disdain. And we need to be careful that we don't imbibe that kind of talk, those kind of attitudes. We might feel like, well, that person, he, he deserves to be skewered like that. 
But we need to take care that these attitudes don't grip our hearts. And often people that push the very worst ideas, they're convinced in their own minds that, they're, that, that they have the highest motives and that they're pushing for what they believe will be the best for our country. And, and we believe that in many ways, because they're strangers to God's grace, strangers to his word, in many cases, it is absolute and pure darkness that has clouded their vision. Sinful passions also get them riled up, and they say things, perhaps, that are provoking to us. But when they do all that, we must never forget that these are people that are created in the image of God. And we should not rail against them. We should not, we should not curse them, as James says. We should bless them, and we should pray for them, as Jesus has taught us. And of course, this doesn't mean that we don't discuss wrong policies that are made and wrong decisions. All that's part of being a democracy. But we need to be careful that we don't cut down people and treat them as if they are bag of garbage and as if they're not worth anything. Let's remember, every human being is in the image of God and therefore valuable. And then secondly, we need to learn to love people that are created in the image of God. We should never minimize our sin against God and against each other. And by loving other people doesn't mean that we just gloss over their sin and excuse it. We are not the glorious creatures that God created and placed in the garden. And others are not either. But sin does not eradicate the image as we've seen from God's word. And we must not forget this in our dealings with other people. John Calvin brilliantly describes the impact of recognizing that others are created in the image of God. And I want you to bear with me for a moment as I read a, 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 a section here of what he says. Love of neighbor is not dependent upon the manner of men, but looks to God. You see this? It's not the way that person is acting, but looking beyond that person to God. That's how you love that person. The Lord commands all human beings without exceptions to do good. And yet the great part of them are most unworthy if they are judged by their own merit. But here scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that manner of merit themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men to which we all owe honor and love. And therefore, whatever person you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. You say, well, he's a stranger. He meets that objection. But the Lord has given him a mark that should be familiar to you. By virtue of the fact that God forbids you to despise his own flesh. And you say, well, he's contemptible. He's worthless. Calvin answers this too. But the Lord shows him to be one whom God has designed to give the beauty of his image. Even that one you feel is worthless. You say that you owe nothing of any service to him. But God, as it were, he has put him in his own place in order that you might recognize toward him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. Assuredly, there is but one way in which to achieve what is not merely difficult but utterly against human nature, to love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits. This is why you try to help that person that is poor. 
that person that you think, well, why are you begging for money? There's all kinds of help wanted signs around. This is why we try to reach out to people in their various states. Many times there are mental issues. There are, there are horrible things that, that they're experiencing. We don't know the whole story. And we're tempted to just brush people off and just reject them, not care for them, and especially to hate them because of what they say and what they stand for. But we're to love them. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. And how do we love our neighbors ourselves? By remembering that they are created in the image of God. So what I do to that person, I'm doing to God, as it were. I'm doing to the one that he, that he represents. And so we need to learn to love those that are created in the image of God. And then notice also that the fact that we're created in God's image, this also highlights the gravity of our rebellion against God. Genesis 9 teaches us why murderers are to be put to death. And it's because of the seriousness of murdering people created in God's image. That's why. And in a similar way, our own rebellion against God, this is against the very one whose image we bear. And this is why sinners are not just annihilated when they die. They experience in body, in mind, and soul the torment of eternity in hell. Because their sin is so grievous against God whose image they bear. In this reality, it's not only meant to lead us to godly fear, but to godly grief. How far have we fallen from this image? Thomas Boston says, Oh, how we are fallen from heaven. It has defaced the sin, the moral image of God, with which man's soul was beautifully decorated in his primitive state, and rent in pieces that pleasant picture of himself which God set up in this lower world. This stately fabric lies now in ruins and calls us to lament over its ruins with weeping eyes and grieved hearts. Now there is ignorance in the mind instead of that knowledge of God and the divine things with which it was richly furnished in its primitive state. The understanding that as a lamp or candle shone brightly is now enveloped by darkness. The will that was exactly conformable to the will of God and naturally disposed to comply with every intimation thereof. In other words, Adam's will was perfectly right and leaped to God's command. It's now filled with Enmity and rebellion against God and against his law. And the affections that were all holy and pure are disordered and, and, and distempered. There are, they're foul and unclean. We love and dote upon what we should hate and we hate what we should love. How far we have fallen from this image. We still have the image, but what a defacement has taken place. How dismal, he says, is man's case. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. Let us weep and let us mourn over our ruined estate. But this is not the end of the story, thank God. I come to my final word of application. We're reminded here of the great love of God. God so loved his rebellious creatures, made in his image, that he gave them the perfect image bearer who did not in any way deface the image. He gave to us 
his only begotten Son, his dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ, a Savior who took our nature and who in body and mind and spirit suffered the torments of hell on the cross in our behalf. This is what God did to, to reclaim us, we who are in the image of God. And because you see image bearers of God are of such immense value to God, he was willing to pay this immense infinite price. And he did this in order that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My unconverted friend, you think that God wouldn't receive you. You think that you're just, you've, you've rejected light, you've turned your heart in your heart, and you think that probably you'll never get saved because of the way your heart is. You can't stand listening to sermons. You wish there'd be these applications of, to unconverted people. You wish that you, you, you rebel against all that. And sometimes you, you wish that you had the peace and the, the joy that you see among God's people. And sometimes perhaps you, you wish that you didn't have a heart that was rebelling against God. And you, and you wish that you were saved from your sins. I want to tell you, my, my, my friend, young and old, God loves you. God made you in his image. You were valuable to God. He sent a Savior that you might be purchased from the, the slave market of sin. And if God loves you that way, if he reaches out to you in that way, and you reach out to him by prayer and call upon him to save you from your sins, God will hear your prayers. God will save you from your sins. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given unto us this remarkable teaching throughout your word that you made us in your own image. And we confess with great grief that time after time we have sinned against this image that you've given us. We've rebelled against your will. We've gone our own way. And how would you thank you and bless you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to save us from our ruin? We plead with you, Lord, that more and more that this image might be renewed in our hearts and strengthened, that we would more and more grow in likeness to God. Help us to do everything that would make us like you, Lord. Help us also to love people that are created in your image. We have a hard time loving some people. Oh, Lord, help us not to have a controversy with anybody. Help us to be right with all. Help us to be good to all. Help us to pray for all. Help us to bless all. Help us to love everyone made in your image. We pray, too, that, that such ones as are found in this room that are made in your image but are far off from you, we pray that this might be the day in which they come to you through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.